On this episode of Chew Diligence, we're walking through Kansas City's rich barbecue history. Kansas City might not even be Kansas City if not for Henry Perry. On the grandfather of KCQ. And I was actually able to find listed there in 1907, you know, Henry Perry barbecue, uh, barbecue stand, 8th Street and Bank. So there it was, black and white. When the rest of the world caught on. But I do think that the 1970s, when, when Trillin wrote about it um, and, and began to popularize the idea that Kansas City had a unique food, food culture. And the thread tying it all to the Casey barbecue we love today. And I think why it's so important is, right, is part of this, just the centrality of how Kansas Cityans think about themselves. Mm. What, is, what is the story we tell about ourselves? And Bill Cheney is back. You worked for Charlie, right? I worked for both of them. For both of them. I washed this for Arthur was at it? 18th and Euclid. I've been working with, with the Bryan set since I was a kid. Sharing his own memories of decades of delicious barbecue and local smoke and fire. I built uh, about eight pits for, for the Pharrell family. Boy, uh, Lindsay Shively in the podcast studio with Jill Silva. And based on the fun conversation we can't stop having already, Jill, I'm really excited for this episode. I'm thrilled, too. We've got three very special people here. They've never met before, um, but they're all friends of mine, and they all come at barbecue from a different angle, and I thought it'd be really fun to put them in the room and start talking about barbecue history and marketing, Mm -hmm. because I think, you know, if you've always got 100 restaurants in Kansas City, that's been pretty constant for a very long time, who, who gets on that top 10 list and how, and... How do you really differentiate yourself? Um, so I think we're going to explore some of that. We're going to see who the grandfather of barbecue was and mm. talk a little bit about um, what's happening in the barbecue world now. Let's introduce our guests, shall we? We have Michael Sweeney here, who is the Bicentennial Coordinator for the State Historical Society of Missouri. And when is that August, Bicentennial? August 10th, 2021. That's exciting. Yeah. So you know a little bit about history and about history here. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining us. And we have Bill Cheney. We were deciding, you know, Bill, how do you want us to introduce you? And all we could come up with was pit builder master extraordinaire because you've built so many of them that are so integral to barbecue here in Kansas City. Yes, it go back to around 1958. Uh, I built many, many wood-burning barbecue pits in Kansas City. <laughs> Thank you for coming. If you've right. eaten Kansas City barbecue for a long time, you've probably had barbecue from a pit that Bill has built. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be true. Oh. Yeah. He's he's quite quite a legend, quite a find. And Doug Wargle is here, who is currently the director of marketing at Joe's Barbecue. He's helped me many times for my TV story when I call five minutes before. I'll be like, I need to come talk to people at Joe's. Is that okay? Come on over. Come on over. (laughs) Uh, But your uh, expertise in barbecue goes well beyond that. Kind of. Yeah, I've been immersed in uh, Kansas City's barbecue history and barbecue culture uh, for for at least 25 years now. And what are you holding? I'm holding a book called The Grand Barbecue. A Celebration of the History, Places, Personalities, and Techniques of Kansas City Barbecue by Doug Wargle. By Doug Wargle. (laughs) Jill, you had a great idea that to set the tone for a very important episode, barbecue really is a huge part of the identity of this town. It is. 
We need to start at the beginning. We need to start at the beginning. And there's there's someone who's called the grandfather of Kansas City Barbecue. And so we were going to talk a little bit about that today. And it struck me this morning when I woke up that perhaps I should grab my Bible. This is my barbecue Bible, Doug. <laughs> Thank I you, use Jill. it quite often. Um, it helped me find the Jones sisters again after mm. they'd been lost for a while. Um, and, and I thought, wouldn't it be great to have... Doug, read us a story. So he's posed and ready here to go. I am ready. I am posed and ready. <laughs> On the night before, I'm sorry. That's, that's right. <laughs> Henry Perry, the barbecue king. Kansas City might not even be Kansas City if not for Henry Perry. Clearly, somebody had to be the first to open a barbecue joint in town, but what if that somebody hadn't been Henry Perry? Maybe that somebody wouldn't have known just when to turn the briskets and the butts or Maybe they would have uh, taken them out of the pit too soon. Maybe that somebody would have used too much vinegar in the sauce or too little cayenne. Or maybe they wouldn't have stuck with it when things got tough and barbecue might never have had the chance to catch on here. Then disgusted with this barbecue blight, Kansas Cityans might have just packed up and taken their taste buds elsewhere. If somebody other than Henry Perry had been the first to open a barbecue joint in Kansas City, God might just have gotten exasperated and decided, look, if you can't get it right, I'll let some other city be the barbecue capital of the world. Thank God it was Henry Perry. Henry Perry was born in 1875 in Shelby County, Tennessee. Memphis is the main city in Shelby County, and the main fact of life is the Mississippi River. By the time he was 15 years old, Henry Perry had landed a job as a cook on one of the steamboats that traveled up the river. The boat docked in cities up and down the Mississippi, giving young Henry the opportunity to see places and people that other boys his age could only dream of. And by the time he was 16, he had lost interest in going back to Shelby County. He had just... uh, He just kept on flowing, following the river, ending up in Chicago and then Minneapolis. It took Henry Perry another 16 years of drifting to find his destiny here in Kansas City. He was an experienced and hardworking kitchen hand, and soon after arriving in 1907, he found a job as a porter in a Quality Hill saloon. But a restlessness still flowed in him, and he knew he wouldn't be happy bussing dishes very long. So it wasn't very long after that that Henry Perry was selling barbecue from a stand on Bank Street Alley. In Shelby County, Tennessee, barbecue was probably as much a part of life as the river itself. So maybe that's where the idea came from, or maybe he learned the art of preparing and smoking meat from some old pitmaster in some sleepy little town somewhere along the Mississippi. But it's just as likely that Henry Perry didn't get the notion of making a living by selling barbecue until he got to Kansas City, because barbecue was already here. It was a part of civic celebrations, church events, and family reunions. It was ingrained in the cultural consciousness of hundreds of Kansas Cityans who, like Henry Perry himself, had come to this place from the American South. Maybe Henry Perry was ready to settle down, and when he saw that Kansas Cityans had an appetite for barbecue, he got the idea that someone could make pretty good money at it if they sold a good product at a good price. It just might be the thing that would let him get comfortable for a while call it divine providence. In the fullness of time, the lives of Henry Perry and Kansas City came together and were changed. The Banks uh, Alley barbecue stand was successful enough that Perry soon needed more room to operate. He moved his enterprise to a place at 17th and Lydia. Arthur Bryant, who years later learned barbecue from Henry Perry, once said that Perry started out with a hole in the ground. This description suggests that 
Early on, Perry did his cooking outdoors. Old-timers remember Perry wrapping his barbecue in newspapers, and Perry's advertisements from this period promise customers barbecued possum, woodchuck, and raccoon. It was, by today's standards, a rather crude affair. But it worked somehow. Soon Perry had competitors, other black men from the South who knew how to barbecue and were eager to imitate Perry's success. In February 1932, 25 years after Henry Perry opened his first barbecue business, The Call, Kansas City's leading black newspaper, published an interview with Perry. The article notes that there were, in Kansas City at that time, quote, more than a thousand barbecue stands, unquote. Clearly, Henry Perry had started something. But though there may have been pretenders to the throne, Perry was the barbecue king, and the call, uh, and in the call, Perry explained why. One reason, he said, quote, is the special way I prepare my meats. Cooking only over a fire made from hickory and oak woods, the meat gets that delicious flavor, which is the cause of the tremendous popularity of barbecue meats, close quote. Apparently, the popularity of Henry's, uh, Perry's product uh, had come to, to the attention of commercial manufacturing houses that had begun selling special barbecue co- ovens with, quote, plenty of attractive doodads, unquote. The call pointed out that Mr. Perry had been offered such ovens by competitors who wished to trade the newfangled devices for a course in the Perry style of barbecuing. Perry's response reflected the confidence that comes with years of experience. I told him that I wouldn't have one of the things in my place. There's only one way to cook barbecue, and that is the way I am doing it, over a wood fire with a properly constructed oven and pit. In the 1920s, Henry Perry moved his operation to 19th and Highland. According to Arthur Bryant, he worked out of an old streetcar for a while and then moved into a building. He became an increasingly important part of the African-American business community and earned a reputation for generosity, in part by hosting a barbecue picnic for neighborhood children every 4th of July. He also acquired a reputation for being a tough, no-nonsense kind of guy. He posted a sign in his restaurant that announced, My business is to serve you, not to entertain you. One story has him working the counter at a restaurant when some poor fellow pulled a gun on him in a misguided attempt to rob the place. Perry is said to have produced his own gun from beneath the counter, whereupon he shot the man dead. Perry might have considered dousing the thief with some of the barbecue sauce. Apparently it was so peppery that it brought tears to people's eyes. Uh. In 1931, uh, Henry Perry suffered a stroke that left him partially paralyzed in one side. This was not the first of his health problems. Years earlier, he had lived in Bonner Springs, Kansas, hoping that the country air would help him with some of his chronic ailments. He attributed his miraculous recovery from his stroke to a homemade remedy suggested to him by a man, perhaps a customer, who had had too much to drink. (laughs) Perry decided to try the cure in spite of the fellow's intoxicated state because he had become frustrated with other treatments that had failed. Henry Perry's Barbecue Kingdom eventually included three restaurants, and among the members of his court were Charlie and Arthur Bryant and Arthur Pinkard. The Bryants eventually started their own joint. Pinkard went on to work for George Gates, founder of the Gates Barbecue Empire. Near the end of his life, Henry Perry commented on his career in the barbecue business. I made lots of money, he said, and I made lots of friends ranging from humble neighbors to members of the moneyed groups. Henry Perry died on March 22, 1940. He was 66 years old. He was buried on the banks of the Mississippi in Osceola, Arkansas, just across the river from Shelby County. 
In its 1932 feature, The Call observed that the popularity of Henry Perry's barbecue crossed traditional social dividing lines. Kansas City, it seemed, was united in this regard. Quote, with a trade about equally divided between white and black, Mr. Perry serves both high and low. Swanky limousines, gleaming with nickel and glossy back, rub shoulders at the curb outside the Perry stand with prehistoric Model T Fords. Livered chauffeurs gaze haughtily at humble self-drivers, but all have the common ambition to sink their teeth in a pit of Perry's succulent barbecue. Bravo. Indeed. <laughs> that book was written in 2001 and published... At the Kansas City Star, the by Kansas, the Kansas City re- uh, Star's own publishing imprint, yes. Which they don't, they don't do books anymore. Yeah, not anymore. So can you, you can still get this probably on... You can get it on Amazon and pay Amazon? too much for it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have an autographed copy, so I don't, there you I don't go. have to, but thank you for reading Oh, you're welcome. Today. It was my delight. Um, so I'm wondering what set you down this path and how did you figure out that um, Henry Perry was... The figurative grandfather of, of barbecue. Did you, did you read that somewhere? Did yeah, actually, um, um, I read it uh, in an article uh, written by Calvin Trillin. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he wasn't much of a historian himself, but he did have a very close relationship with Arthur Bryant. And, um, and it was Arthur Bryant, I think, who, who uh, tipped him off that Henry Perry was, was who— Bryant himself had learned barbecue from, and um, Calvin Trillin then became aware of the uh, of the lineage of of Bryant's barbecue and uh, knew that it it could be traced all the way back to Henry Perry, and uh, he included that in some of his uh, own writing, Trill, Trillin's own writing, and um, so I became acquainted with uh, and then later friends with um, with Bud Trillin uh, during the writing of the book, and um, and he kind of filled me in on on some of the. The Perry history, and then I went to the Star's own archives and and found um, in some of the early uh, they used to produce uh, like an almanac. The city used to produce an almanac of the of the licensed businesses in town, and the Star has some of those in its own archives. And I was actually able to find listed there in 1907, you know, Henry Perry barbecue uh, barbecue stand, Eighth Street and Bank. So there it was. Black and white, and uh, and I looked then in some of the earlier editions to see if there was any barbecue establishments that that you know had been established prior to Henry Perry's and couldn't find any. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 it's possible, but I think that um, that that I think that it's probably true that that um, there were no licensed commercial barbecue entrepreneurs before Henry Perry, at least not in Kansas City. So. It's pretty fascinating. So yeah, it's fun stuff. Um, so, did you feel like a a pioneer, as you know, <laughs> like writing this history down? Because it sounds like uh, your friend Bud. Look, <laughs> you really are friends, right? If you, <laughs> um, like, well, he was the pioneer. I mean, he right. was the one who discovered it. So he, was he was the was Lewis and Clark that. in that regard. And okay. um, I just was able to then take that that little bit of information that he provided and uncovered and and explore it. Uh, in further depth. So and was his sort of an oral history? That, no, it was that he, I mean, he did actually, it, at some point r- okay. write it down. And in fact, I think he, you know, he, he, he said that, you know, that there ought to be a statue to Henry Perry hmm. uh, erected somewhere in Kansas city and, and, um, or that we ought to name the airport after Henry Perry. I mean, <laughs> Trillin's very funny. And, um, and, uh, I, I think he wanted to make sure that Henry Perry got his due and, and was, he was, uh, 
crabby that uh, that he hadn't yet, and uh, and so I was able to you know to take that little bit of information and explore it at greater depth. If somebody is listening and thinks Calvin Trillin is a name that sounds familiar, that's because he is the one that wrote about burn ends at Bryant's, right, and Correct. made them famous. Correct. You know, I mean, Calvin Trillin was um, in his day. Um, which would have been the you know the the sixties and seventies and in, into the eighties. He's still a very uh, active uh, writer, but um, he was for a time what Anthony Bourdain was uh, for a mm. time, which was um, the the very hip travel and food writer that all of the you know all of the people who wanted to be in the know followed very closely. Of course, back then there were no social media, and and, and Trillin never had his own TV show like Bourdain. But but they they occupied similar positions in popular culture, which was the kind of the the very smart, um, uh, intelligent traveler who also had this passion for food and and uh, in all of its diversity, and then and and spent you know years and months. Uh, uh, you know, uncovering those for for his readers, and and, and uh, you know, and Burdain did for what, us at Joe's what what uh, Trillin did for Arthur Bryant's, which is really kind of expose um, us to a, a much wider audience. So interesting. And so um, Henry Perry actually is in the Barbecue Hall of Fame, correct? And do you remember what year that was, Doug? I uh, that he was in, inducted. Inducted. Uh, yeah, I'm not was, sure I remember. Probably, but. Uh, maybe maybe 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Michael's story kind of comes in in there because when the Kansas City Barbecue Society and the American Royal were looking for some information, I don't know if they, did you have this book, Michael? I didn't. I didn't. That was my <laughs> introduction to Henry Perry was Grand Barbecue. That's how I got to know about <laughs> Henry great. Perry. Um, and I would place it actually, I think around, I want to say 2011, 2012 uh, was when I was initially approached and, and started doing um, some work. Um, I, I'm, my background is in genealogy, so mm-hmm. I was a genealogist. That's the first thing I did, right? And and as, as I was doing all that, going, oh, this this is a fairly complicated story. Um, and so, but, you know, yeah, Grand Barbecue was my kind of roadmap for going through and looking at some of these things. And you and I have had lunch and talked, and you've continued. You did a lot of research oh, as a yeah, historian. I keep, I keep pecking away at, <laughs> yes. at Henry Perry. Uh, well, and I think because, well, you know, my background is, is I think, yeah, different from from our other guests, right? Is you know, I'm kind of looking at this in the context of local history, and I think why it's so important is right is part of this just the centrality of how Kansas Cityans think about themselves. What mm-hmm. is what is the story we tell about ourselves? I think trying to then uncover um, those extra little bits, you know, um, about Henry Perry. I mean, I think that's that's why this is a, a worthwhile endeavor. Um, where I'm at an advantage over Doug a little bit is uh, I'm doing this almost. 12, 13 years later, um, <laughs> where I can sit easily yeah. in front of census oh, data. Yeah, I can absolutely. easily keyword, mm-hmm. um, you know, stuff in newspapers. I would have loved to have had that. Right. <laughs> and so that, I mean, in some ways, and hence why, yeah, having a, a, um, an updating of that book, I think would be really, really, I think, valuable, uh, not just for people who are in history, but just in Kansas City and mm-hmm. history in general, right? Um yeah, and because I, I think you know those little bits of data, um, just like I said, make a more complicated story. And um, 
Jill, I know based on our conversations, right, my thing has been, you know, what's amazing, one of the neat things about Henry Perry um, is his ability, I think, to advertise, promote. I'm thinking about this whole marketing piece that we sort of mm. talked about, right. you know, mentioned at the top. And Doug and knows it, nothing about marketing. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> right. right. But the fact that Brilliant you, know, marketer. you know, he shows up in um, his ability to, uh, I think, advertise to the audience around him, mm-hmm. right? So the idea of, of possum and, and uh, hog and all, all, right, all the rest of these, that, that, that it appeals to a, su- a southern audience, this idea of when, you know, and, and when that term barbecue king gets used and whether that is something he applied to himself or something it was mm. that was given to him because as I've gone through, well, there's other barbecue kings. So how is that term being used right. and how does that go? Um, but also the idea that his name means something. I found a number of articles post his death where, uh, yeah, we're operating uh, in the Henry Perry tradition in mm-hmm. the 1940s, right? So that, that name means something and then connecting it up with that lineage that you've already that. mentioned of, um, you know, where Calvin Trillin sort of comes into this. So how is that story passed on mm-hmm. and whatnot? And I think also about, you know, Arthur Pinkard, right, that his photograph is up in Gates and, yep. you know, it's there for to make that connection back yep. to um, to this lineage, yeah. So from what we can tell, was Henry Perry very aware of the legacy he was creating while he was still alive? I think to a certain extent, yes. Um, I mean, I, I think he was, um, you know, you get the sense from reading the call interview that that um, he that he had a sense of his own importance within the community, uh, within the African-American community. And I think he had um, certainly a lot of pride um, in his in his accomplishments, have I, I think he had both a lot of pride in the quality of his food, and also in the uh, nature of his accomplishments as a as a businessman, mm. and I I think that's important as well. Well, I was gonna say, I mean, the other thing that, that I think contributes to this is. Um, a, he just seems to be a genuinely good guy. So there's all mm. kinds of stories about, hey, we're giving free barbecue for the old folks and the kids, uh, but also smart enough to know that that's building up, um, building up the business. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he ends up, there's a number of things I've run into where he's giving a free meal to the staff at the call, right? right? And and I don't find other barbecue folks showing up like right. that, right? Mm. That he's, yeah, and he's built relationships, right? So early on, um, you know, he was a Prince Hall Mason. He was involved. Uh, there's a great um, article in like the Kansas City Sun that's like birthday party for Henry Perry and says who shows up. Well, it's doctors, it's lawyers, it's business people. He's, right. he's somebody, mm. right? He's not just a fly by night guy who, you know, right. doing, doing barbecue down the way, but he's involved and engaged right. and, and all of that. Bill, I want to ask you, you told us when you came on before that you worked for the Bryants. You worked for Charlie, right? I worked for both of them. For both wash, of them. I washed dishes for Arthur was at 18th and Euclid. Oh, that's okay. incredible. Was yeah. uh, Henry Perry's name floating around then? Did people talk about him? Yes, people talked about Henry, uh, Mr. Perry. But see, there's another barbecue restaurant, I think you all met, and that's uh, 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 O.J. Uh, Bartlett. Dixieland Barbecue at night at, on Nineteenth Street. Now he was he was a, in superb business with uh, back in the in the forties, and then that's where Gates got his. I don't know. That's where Gates got his started from. from O.J. Bartlett. If O.J. Bartlett uh, had a son named Virgil Bartlett, and him and George Gates were were were, were real good friends, and that's how our Gates got about nineteen forty six somewhere like forty seven. That's how Gate got started in the barbecue business. Hmm. So there's a lot going on here in terms of uh, relationships. Barbecue seems to be very relational. Bill, you grew up in the 
the 18th and Vine neighborhood, yes, not uh-huh. too far from the um, mm-hmm. Arthur Bryant's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what do you remember about uh, barbecue in that day? Did everybody eat barbecue all the time? Were they as obsessed about barbecue as they are today? Well, you know, actually, uh, real barbecue started in the South when, when black folks, was uh, African-Americans, were slaves, you know, and uh, they dug holes in the ground. I know my grandfather and I'm out in Cedar City, Missouri, that's east of Jefferson City. Well, four or five times a year, everybody get together and they'd dig a big hole in the ground and, and uh, cook a sheep or a goat all night long. Had big, big, big buckets, uh, uh, big tubs of mopping sauce. Mm-hmm. Big, big mops is what they mopped it with, you know. What was now, the sauce like? Uh, It, it was kind of vinegary, vinegary, like, you know, and they used uh, quite a bit of paprika in it, too. Hmm. I don't know, back in those days, they didn't have the seasons that they have today, you know. Black pepper was the, <laughs> <laughs> was the hot sauce, you know. <laughs> in the, I mean, around in this area, you know, mm-hmm. where, where I grew up, you know, so. How different are the menus now, like when you worked for the Bryant's, the same menu as we see today? Well, no. The Well, the, mostly back when I was a kid coming up, it was ribs and, 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 and beef sandwiches. Mm. That was that was the menu, you know. Now, the the uh, Bernie-Ins and all the new new uh, recipes, they came on, that came along at a later date, you know. When when barbecue really got really popular with, in, in Kansas City, you know. Oh. I know... Oh, Fifteen or twenty businesses, you know, family business had barbecue, uh, little barbecue shacks, they call them, you know, that are don't exist today, you know. So realize I'm I'm eighty eight years old. <laughs> He's seen a lot. You've seen I've it. I've seen a lot of things happen in Kansas City, especially especially around around the jazz area, eighteenth hmm. and Vine, nineteenth and Vine, you know, and. We lived in 19th in Brooklyn. In 1939, my dad's house payment was $25 a month. Wow. Most money I ever seen to make was $15 a week. <laughs> Bill, these other yeah. places like Dixieland Barbecue you were talking about, was it all, was mostly everything beef? Uh, no, they served a lot of pork. Pork ribs. Yeah, pork ribs. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. Well, the beef ribs didn't come along until later years. It was all pork ribs. Pork ribs and beef sandwiches. Beef, beef sandwiches and briskets, yeah. So I'm I'm wondering when we became known as a barbecue city. When did Kansas City? That's that's so central to our, our identity. It is mm-hmm. the iconic food, and I moved here from somewhere else. So when I came to Kansas City, I had to learn, especially as the food editor, <laughs> um, about barbecue. I mean, I grew up in Denver. It was a whole lot of grilling. Mm-hmm. I thought that was barbecue, and I thought that um, Casey Masterpiece was really the only sauce. And really that bar- what was distinguishing about barbecue was that you poured sauce all over something. I didn't really understand the nuances until I worked a little while in Texas and then moved to Kansas City mm-hmm. and started to pick up, oh, my gosh, there are differences. But I, I'm very curious if, if we can... Because I think the story's all wrapped up. Yeah. When did we become a barbecue town? I, I think that we became, I think we've been a, if you look at, the, the reason why I chose the Grand Barbecue as the, as the title for the book is that in the very first edition of the, of the Kansas City Star, which is September 18th, 1880, right in the center on the front page is a, an article with the headline, The Grand Barbecue. So mm. 
all the way back to 1880, wow. uh, we can see um, that barbecue was already a part of Kansas City culture. Now, Kansas City was not unique then um, it, because uh, barbecue as a big civic event where lots of people from, you know, the public was invited to a, uh, to a big civic event where whole animals would be cooked over open fire um, uh, to celebrate some kind of civic uh, happening um, or accomplishment. Uh, you know, that, that goes all the way back, um, all the way back, frankly, to, you know, to the colonial period. Um, but, uh, you know, we can see that it was a part of Kansas City culture, you know, as, as, as early as the 19th century. But I do think that the 1970s, when, when Trillin wrote about it um, and, and began to popularize the idea that Kansas City had a unique food, food culture, uh, that was in the 70s. Also, it was in the 70s when, um, when Rich Davis, uh, did, you know, created Kansas City Masterpiece Barbecue Sauce. And it began to, I think, popularize this notion that Kansas City and barbecue were associated and had a connection. And as that sauce began to be uh, sold and, 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 um, and enjoyed nationwide and eventually worldwide, that, you know, that, that connection, that phrase, Kansas City barbecue, um, you know, really, I think, uh, stuck in people's consciousness. I think another thing that, frankly, um, and, I, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, I think one of the things that really did, I think, popularize um, the notion of Kansas City as a barbecue town was when uh, sports broadcasters would come to town back in the day when, when um, you know, the, the stadium uh, was at, what, 27th in Brooklyn? Ball Stadium? Yeah. It's up at 21st in Brooklyn. 21st in Brooklyn. 20, 20, you know, it was an open-air stadium, and uh, these broadcasters were sitting in an open-air broadcast booth, <laughs> and all of this barbecue smoke from all of the neighborhood barbecue joints was wafting through. This is before tailgating is a tradition, but the barbecue joints were literally right there in the neighborhood surrounding the stadium. and Family. Yeah, and people would the broadcasters would mention that in their broadcasts, so that the people listening to those broadcasts in their hometowns, you know, so if it, if the, you know, if the Kansas City Athletics were playing the you know the New York Yankees, uh, the people in New York were hearing about the fact that boy this bar, this place smells great, you know, the, the barbecue smoke is uh, is all over the place, and then uh, John Madden, frankly, um, I mean he's. He's a big guy with a big appetite, and when he would come to town uh, to the um, you know to the Truman Sports Complex uh, for Chiefs games and talk about our tailgating tradition, and he would literally walk around and interview people uh, who were tailgating and making barbecue in the parking lot, and then also then talk about restaurants he had stopped at, uh, you know, when he was in town. I mean, I think John Madden, uh, frankly, did a lot to popularize the notion that. Kansas City was a barbecue town. So, and, and other broadcasters as well, not, not, not specifically Madden. But Madden has a bigger-than-life personality and a big appetite, and it was a part of his persona to talk about food. And when he came to Kansas City, this was the food he talked about. That makes so much sense. I don't think I realized how really that seems recent to me, that the 70s would be when we would earn that from the rest of the country, at least. But when you talk about Municipal Stadium being there, that was the living room of Kansas City. Every family that's been here has mem- my mom and dad remember going to games. Chiefs, mm-hmm. Royals, mm-hmm. the Beatles played there. Yep. Lou Gehrig's last at bat was at Municipal Stadium. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many moments. Well, S- Satchel Paige's last game was. The Monarchs, right. absolutely. I mean, and that was there right up until the 70s, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's wild. This was a, 
uh, was, was there at the uh, they they had a competition between Jesse Owens and a, a quarter horse race horse, <laughs> and oh. and and they had a race. And Jesse Owens won because a, a quarter horse because he can he can get in the speed up in a hundred yards. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That's yeah. fun. Were you yeah. there, Bill? Uh, I was nothing but a small <laughs> kid. Yeah, yeah, we 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 used to slip in a lot of ball games, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because we didn't have any money, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And did a little work around the, around the ballpark, you know, like catch balls that came over the wall and stuff like that. Oh, my well, gosh. The Jones sisters said they worked there, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Bill, I'm, cu- I'm curious when uh, you and I have talked about that, but I think listeners need to know a little bit more about how you got into making barbecue pits in the first place, which has, has really um, put you at the front seat, I think, of, uh, you know, the forefront of watching what's happened to the Kansas City barbecue scene since, hmm, when did you start? In the 50s, you were telling me? Well, yes, I started, uh, I really started out building fireplaces. That's what really got me acquainted with the, how to build a barbecue pit, you know. And my my uh, my, my partner, uh, I used to have a partner, he's much older than me, me matter of fact, he, he was full-fledged mason. I was just number to keep learning, learning the trade. So we got to be partners, and we we got to be partners because I had I had, I, had, I worked for Larry Ballbecker, the contractor that taught me masonry, you know, and he had uh, give give me a bunch of scaffolding. So Archie Pierce, he's a he's he's a, the grandfather. Of, well, just a couple more of uh, building building wood barbecue pits, and we were working. He was working out there to. Uh, 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 then the fifth and prospect, the uh, the Fair, Fairland Park, with Brand Cato. So he met he met uh, Russ Farrell through Brand Brand Cato, and we built a, we built the first barbecue pit for Russ Farrell. That was back in about nineteen oh about nineteen fifty eight. Mm-hmm. 50, 56, 57. 57 is when um, Fiorella was, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah uh, it was Jack's dad. Jack was still in high school, you know, and Jack wanted to, wanted to, to update the business, but Russ wanted to keep it, you know, just the way, he, the way it was, you know, with the regular cash restaurant, you know, but Jack always wanted to move up. Didn't so. they have a grocery store to start well, with? Well, start then, off with. And then the, moved the, into yeah, barbecue? Yeah, the, the Farrells was in the, in, in, the, in the grocery store business and in the laundry business, too, see. Russ is uh, the oldest Pharrell of Kelly. Was, he had the laundromat at uh, t- what, 24th and uh, Brooklyn. It was known to be one of the largest uh, laundromats in Kansas City. But anyway, I got started uh, with uh, uh, building, building uh, fireplaces where I got started. And then from then on, uh, I got with Archie Pierce and, and uh, we, we built uh, uh, well, the first, the first, the first barbecue pit uh, that uh, built for us, uh, I didn't, I didn't do much work on that, you know. I did some other brickwork because Archie was type in the visitor. He likes paint, <laughs> <laughs> so I worked with him sometimes, and sometimes that I didn't. And then we moved out there to to 134th and Holmes, and we. Uh, uh, we modeled that place. That was a service station, 
Hmm. And that's where I really got in, got in, in uh, uh, close with Jack. And, and you did almost all of the pits for Fiorellas. Yeah, correct? all 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 of them. But all of them. But all but the last one built out here. Right? And also See? Summit Hickory Pit and Summit. Summit. Pit, mm-hmm. And remind me of um, Parkville. Up, Parkville, and then up north uh, yeah, was that Smoke. A uh, 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 smokehouse barbecue. Smokehouse, I built, I built right. all his pits except the ones out to Santa Rosa, and uh, I built uh, about eight pits for for the Farrell family. And then and, you uh, also yeah. kept um, the upkeep of the Arthur Bryant's, one. right? Mm-hmm. You didn't actually build that one, but you uh, you, you keep, kept it in good working mm-hmm. order. Up mm-hmm. tore it all apart and rebuilt it all. And like mm-hmm. I say, I've been working with with the Bryant set since I was a kid, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And and I was building a dairy in '71 down in Lewisburg, Kansas, JWS uh, Cattle Company, and, and Charlie needed some work done, so I couldn't get to him, so he fired me. <laughs> <laughs> but he finally hired me back. Well, that's <laughs> good. <laughs> you got smart. Yeah. And I worked at Arthur Bryant's every, every year during the, uh, uh, New Year's Day. That's when it closed up and get the work done. And uh, a wood-burning pit, if you if you have a, a large quantity of food going, then it needs repair work every year. And if you if you if you keep the repair work, then the, the oven will last you 25, 30, 40 years. Yeah, that, that, that's a long time. I was going to ask, since I, there are two experts here, um, could you all talk a little bit about sort of this transition from uh, the guy who builds the pit, manages the, the meat, sells the meat and whatnot to kind of this restaurant model. Part of what makes me think about this is, of course, Henry Perry is doing it all. By the time we get to, uh, there's a great um, ad in, in the call for Old Kentucky Barbecue featuring, right, the oldest barbecue man in Kansas City, Arthur J. Pinkert, right? That, that's an advertising selling point. Hey, <laughs> you've got this cook uh, to kind of what is modern now. I don't, I don't, I think Michael, you're preferring to low and slow versus hot and fast. Maybe, right? Uh, mm, no? no. Oh, Doug says no. No, no, no but, you, I, but you understand the question. Yeah, I guess I'm yeah, I do. You. It, it, you know, it's interesting. Is that um, the the um, what, what you're? The, the, that's still a very real dynamic that's being um, discussed and even debated in barbecue. Uh, you know, in uh, Aaron Franklin uh, uh, from Franklin's Barbecue in, in Austin, he's, has gotten a lot of attention lately, and and um, he kind of became uh, Bourdain's new girlfriend after us, uh, and uh, you know, um, got a lot of uh, attention, and um, and deservedly so because he he um, he makes a, a great barbecue, uh, and um, but you know he he builds his own pits um, now they're. More competition style pits. They're, you know, the the big metal offset smokers, um, and they are tended all night long uh, by you know guys he hires specifically for that purpose, uh, and it's all wood fired and it, no gas assist like uh, in most Kansas City restaurants these days. Uh, also in the Carolinas, um, there's a big debate now about you know real barbecue versus. You know, uh, not real barbecue, and and the distinction there is, you know, if it's cooked over uh, live wood um, all night long, it's real barbecue, and if it, you know, and if it's gas assist or or there's no wood used at all, which I, I can't even imagine anyone would want to call that barbecue, but, um, you know, uh, but uh, so the, the, that question of of you know of how it's prepared and is it pre- is it 
cooked all night long over a wood fire, um, you know, is still a real question. It's not really much of a question in Kansas City any longer. Um, most commercial barbecue establishments, restaurants, um, you know, use uh, these you know, these big commercial uh, ovens that cook a lot of barbecue. You know, when I Joe's included. Joe's included, yes. Now, when I first met Jeff Staney, our, the owner uh, and founder of, um, of Joe's Kansas City Barbecue, uh, I was a, a journalist at the Star, and I, um, you know, I, I talked to him about about his. And it was this was in uh, two thousand one, so he'd only been open for about five years, and um, I asked him, you know, about his success and why he was beginning to make all of these best of lists, and. Um, you know, he said, it's interesting, he said, you know, you, you can, he, he got his start in competition barbecue, uh, cooking in Kansas City Barbecue Society sanctioned contests. And he said, you know, it's one thing to spend all night long babying a brisket, <laughs> tending to it, turning it into the judge and, you know, and wowing them with, you know, with the, this spectacular brisket that you've spent all night long babying and tending to. He said, it's it's quite another thing to to cook brisket for, you know, hundreds of people every day, day after day after day. You can't, you, you can't do it. Consistently? You, you can't cook barbecue the way you cook it for a contest Well, yeah, at, at, at scale. Mm-hmm. You, it's crazy you, what they you do. You just can't. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the Jones sisters come close. They've got a very small pit, and they just rebuilt their pit, um, as I understand it. Um, but even so, they don't have a lot of capacity. Um, but we literally serve thousands of people every day. So we've got to, you know, be able to to um, cook thousands of pounds of meat every day, and that can't be done in you know in a in in a um, in just a pit that only cooks wood and only has the capacity for you know maybe a few hundred pounds of meat. So, you know, it, that, that's the transition. Um, it's the volume transition. Right, it's volume the volume in. transition. And, yeah. and the more, the, it, ironically, the more successful you become, <laughs> the better your barbecue is, the more successful you become, the more you, you know, the, 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 the further away you get from, you know, kind of the, the simple, more rustic um, m- methods of cooking, you know, strictly over wood, tending it all night, uh, it's a very, you know, barbecue is very, very labor intensive in any way that you can uh, realize some economies in order to make it more affordable and to make it uh, a more profitable business. And also a more consistent one, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly right. You and I have yeah, talked about in the past that um, pitmasters, I mean, there you don't have many restaurants that have a pitmaster anymore. We don't even have anybody with that title in our company. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arthur Bryant's. He could turn out a twenty uh, a ton of meat in twenty four uh, twenty four hours. Nobody cooked like Arthur Bryant. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Arthur Bryant cooked over a live fire, and the, and the, the cookmaster sat there and uh, he dosed the fire and he kept the meat moving all the time. He kept the, nobody, you don't have any any, any uh, cooks that can cook like cooks for, for Arthur Bryant. Right. You only had two grates in there. He, in 24 hours, he cooked a ton of, ton of meat because mm-hmm. he kept it moving all the time. Right. It, that's all they did. The, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the master cooked this stuff that just kept moving. Only two grates. Just kept yeah. lighting up. 
And Arthur Bryant's uh, uh, pit, he's got 60-pound railroad rails mm-hmm. at the bottom. That's Cat <laughs> Grace. Burn those mm-hmm. into and warp them. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how much heat was in that in that little pit. And his walls are are, are 14, 16, 16 inches thick. Oh my God! Okay. Wow. Now, when I went down there last year, and he's, he's going to make a, a, a heritage pit out of it. And we went to to, to open up, to put another door in and another set of grates in it. And it took three nights. To cut a, a, a two-foot hole, a two-foot square hole through the side of that oven. Mm. That's how hard it is. Mm. Amazing. It's, it's mm. totally different. Wow. And what did you say, Bill, a heritage pit? Is that like what? Yeah. Is, yeah. It's, uh, so, it's, it's, uh, it's probably the oldest wood-burning pit in, Kansas, uh, okay. in, 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 in the country. At Arthur Bryant's? Arthur Bryant's. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking even, you know, in, in looking at kind of Henry Perry's business you know before his before for his stroke at one point he had three places operating yeah and which requires then employees it requires right so trying to think about you know just what the operation entails and that idea of oh here's the guy who is the barbecue man mm-hmm. versus here's the business we've got our pit master versus you know here's just a restaurant that now serves barbecue and and the person who's cooking it is inconsequential right but that idea that oh that that the person and their reputation and what it is they're offering how what role that that plays and whether henry perry is maybe kind of this transitional figure and, and maybe not but well i think it brings up some interesting points for marketing and and doug i think you can talk a little bit about that i mean you, it's very romantic to think about a pit master, right? right? And to associate that with a person. And as we're moving away from that, I think the marketing needs to be a little bit different. And the questions people are asking are probably different. I don't know how many people even come in and say, who's your pit master and what wood do you use? That's just a geeky thing I do. Right. <laughs> but um, talk a little bit about that because you've had immense success right. um, marketing for Joe's Casey. You've, right. you've really helped. You, you've done some brilliant things to put them on the map. I actually think that that um, I've really only just um, told the story um, and, that, and that, the, um, that the brilliant things that have been done to put Joe's on the map have been done by the people who make the barbecue. And, and, uh, and I think that starts with Jeff. Um, and I do think that, that the personality of the person behind the barbecue is mm-hmm. still important, is still critical. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff's identity is just absolutely intertwined with the identity of the company as a whole and, and his wife, Joy. They, I mean, they've been a team from the very beginning, and they both have a lot of visibility in the competition barbecue world. And, um, you know, and, uh, you know, Jeff, it, it, Jeff's, uh, you know, still, uh, you know, he's one of few um Competition barbecue cooks who's won grand championships in each of three decades, and so he's still very much a factor on the competition barbecue circuit. Placed really nicely in this year's uh, American Royal too, for that matter. Mm. So I do, and uh, you know, and Joy can still be seen behind the line, you know, at any of our three restaurants. So I think that, you know, that their personalities and their their role uh, is is central to our identity. Um, and I do think that uh, you know that LC is still important at LC's barbecue, mm. and um, you know, and Rob McGee is important at Q39, and I, I know, and um, and and the Pierce brothers are important at Slaps, and BB, you know, you know I mean, uh, Lindsay is still important at BB. So, you know, those those 
they aren't necessarily, I mean, the Slap Brothers are still making the barbecue. L.C. Richardson is still making the barbecue. Jeff and Joy aren't making the barbecue anymore, um, but they still do make barbecue at these contests. And so they still have their hands, um, you know, they're still very hands-on, and they're still an important part of the identity. So I think that's part of the barbecue tradition. But it's, it's also a part of restaurant traditions as well, generally speaking. I mean, Colby Geralt's is, is you know, his identity is, is a part of Blue Stem's identity and Rye's identity. And, and the same was true with Megan and her role in the company. So I still think that, you know, that, that that's a thing that's, that's part of barbecue, part of restaurants, generally speaking. But, um, you know, as far as marketing is concerned, um, you know, you've got to create a... Uh, you got to figure out what our story is, and then you find out a, find a good way to tell that story. And uh, social media has been become important to to us, and we can talk more about that as we go. Well, I think Michael, I'm wondering to your point mm-hmm. when you would walk in and say, "Who's the pitmaster in the story of the restaurant?" Has that fully transitioned in Kansas City to what's your barbecue competition pedigree? Because mm-hmm. so many times we walk in and there are ribbons gracing the walls, like Q39s, like yep. Scott's Kitchen, like all these places. It's become the new thing. And do you think? That that's a necessary thing these days to launch a new barbecue place. I don't think it's necessary. I do think it because the Jones, for example, the Jones sisters uh, didn't compete in barbecue contests. Um, uh, they inherited their business from their father and and um, and struggled mightily to keep it alive. And yeah. and uh, but um, you know and now they're doing well. Um, but uh, I do think it's a um, it's become an increasingly common um, way for uh, barbecue. Competitors, you know, they, they transition to, to to restaurants, thinking that they can translate their success in competition to to restaurant business, and and it's that's a that's hard. It's, yeah, that's really hard. Yeah. And we had an episode about the changing technology of barbecue, where Bill first came to see us, and and Rob McGee said the same thing that you're saying. When you have to serve that many people consistently, you need the big smokers and, you know, Mm -hmm. the equation that you can set perfectly every day, basically. Um, Do you think there's anything lost in that for the food? I don't. I I don't. I mean, um, first of all, the food that wins barbecue contests um, would not make for a successful restaurant. It's it's too rich. It's too uh, it's you think people would be surprised to take because we don't get to taste competition food, right? Right. I've tasted it. Yeah. Jill so gets to taste competition so food. It's really intense. So it's re- yeah, and they're they're creating it so that because they know that you're only going to take two bites. The judges are only going to take yeah one or two bites, right? And so they've got to stand out. So I think um, that's probably why you see a fair amount of very sweet ribs, um, you know, like yeah. or very highly seasoned. It's yeah. just it's sweet a punch. And sweet it's and a punch. Right. Yeah, it's not a meal. It's a bite. Yeah. It's a bite, exactly. Right. That's very well put, Lindsay. And yeah, I think that's kind of interesting. You and and, and they're taking skin. I mean, I've spent time with Jeff mm-hmm. while he was back on the circuit. Right. I mean, you know, they're peeling off the skin and putting it back on the chicken thigh, and right. you know, it's 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 more like chemistry and I don't know Art. what. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 just really intense and there are very specific methods that right. they're using in order to do that, but it's not something you could ever do um, on scale. No. And, and, nor would no. you want to and nor would customers like it much. Mm. I mean, um it, it it people you know don't can't eat a whole meal of competition barbecue. You just can't. It's just it's too intense. And it's not, you know, it's not 
created for that purpose. It, it really isn't. And um, But what purpose do you think it served in that, you know, like what would it have been like, and you're good at imagining things, um, <laughs> what would it have been like if, if Henry Perry had been able to compete in competition barbecue? What, I mean, it, how does that change the whole scene? Because we are very much looking at people who are coming off the competition scene and using that as their springboard into the restaurant. I think they're world. using their their accolades in in that they've earned um, and won in competition to give them barbecue credibility, and then they and then they uh, you know create a a, a a a brand or an identity around their their wins, and then they use that to you know to to attract customers. But they're not really serving competition barbecue in those restaurants. They can't. Right. Um, and. Uh, you know, I think going the other way, going from restaurant to competition, usually ends up being for most restaurateurs um, a real wake-up call that you know restaurant barbecue does not win contests. And Jeff is the first to admit it. He said, "He said the 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 food that we serve every day in our restaurant that people are wildly happy with, and, and you know, and, and our you know our barbecue is extraordinarily popular. It wouldn't it wouldn't even place in a barbecue contest because it's just." It doesn't have the flavor profile that judges are looking for, and um, um, and yet it's it's the it's the barbecue that you know that that uh, wins us a lot of accolades in, you know, um, um, as a restaurant. Um, so it's you know it it's it's they they almost have no relationship right, to one right, another. Right, right, right. Interesting. When we you know this is a business and television um, news where you move around a lot around the country, and we'll have people move to town and hear about the American Royal, and they can't wait, and they're going to go eat a bunch of barbecue. I'm like, that's not really what that. I mean, there's barbecue to eat there. There is, but well, I was also thinking. I mean, that whole idea of you know, if if the if the barbecue person is the star, right? What does it mean if the barbecue star moves from one place to another? Mm. And I mean, is it, you know that sort of fellowship? And I'm, I guess I'm, I keep trying to circle this back to like you know, um, Henry Perry and Charlie Bryan and, and mm-hmm. folks. Oh, oh, like oh yeah, I know that guy. And if he had moved to another restaurant, I'm heading down mm. to get that guy's food. Um, and whether that is still kind of the case or not, I mean, because it sounds like I'm, I mean, on the competition level, that is very much about the person who's doing the cooking, the person. It, it's very person centered in a way. It's not necessarily business centered, but, I guess. Yeah. But if you look at the at the history of the Kansas City Barbecue Society, you know, it, that basically got started with it. It was really much more of a of a of a way of sanctioning backyard. You know, my my barbecue is better than yours, Mr. Neighbor. You know, it, I mean, it was it's 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 like neighbors who are making barbecue on their Weber grills and or their Weber kettles in their backyard. You know, ch- giving you know a throwdown. You know, hey, my ribs are better than yours, really? Oh yeah, let's let's see. You know, and so we'll make ribs and then we'll have somebody taste them both and they'll tell us whose is better. And and th- so they you know the barbecue society was really more of a of of adding structure and sanction to neighbors cooking barbecue in competition with other neighbors that's what it was uh the restaurant restaurants were never entered into the equation never ended into the thinking um it was really just neighbors and friends and hobbyists who liked making barbecue deciding to cook in contests against one another and well if you're going to cook a contest let's make it fair let's create some rules and then it, it grew from there um and then people who succeeded in that decided i'm pretty good at this um, you know, in Jeff and Joy's case, it was they started doing some caterings, they started doing parties, they started doing, you know, wedding receptions, uh, you know, uh, birthdays, anniversaries. And then, you know, I think 
you know, let's 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 push this to the next level and let's get into the restaurant business. So, but but it started really more of you know backyard guys, you know dads, dads challenging other dads to, you know, to a contest as to whose ribs are better. I mean that's that's how that's how the the whole barbecue competition thing got started. Well, Doug, I want to ask you too. We were talking this a little bit when you guys came in because I went out of town to St. Louis recently and ate at a restaurant and a barbecue restaurant and was blown away by how great it was. And my first thought was, and I think it was obvious because I was out of town. Mm-hmm. Um, they say this is St. Louis barbecue and I'm, and we ordered, when we ordered brisket, brisket they asked fatty lean or burn in. That was the first time that had been presented to me that way. And what I heard was uh, Texas brisket, Kansas City burn in. And you know what I mean? It was yeah. very obvious the regions that were popping out. I mean, they had an Alabama ranch barbecue sauce, a, a Carolina mustard sauce. It seemed like they had a piece of every region of barbecue in the country on one menu. Um, and that made me think, uh, apart from obviously burn ends to me are a Kansas City thing, what is our, what is Kansas City barbecue and what makes us stand out and what makes us... Actually, I think it's interesting. Is that is, we you know when, I think that uh, the the eclectic and ecumenical nature of our barbecue is really what makes us stand out. When we've mm-hmm. obviously contributed some things that are unique to Kansas City, like burn ends, for example, um, and the nature of our sauce. I think our sauce is is unique to Kansas City. Like it's sweetness. Mm, yeah, it's sweet. Um, you know, bar, brown sugar, molasses. Um, you know, ketchup based sauce. Uh, the um, you know, the barbecue wasn't invented in Kansas City, but it was perfected in Kansas City. And uh, it was after, you know, the Civil War when, uh, you know, the enslaved African-Americans were enslaved Africans were were liberated and they migrated out of the South. They brought their the barbecue traditions with them from from the South. Uh, we were a cattle town and a river town. And, um, you know, cattle drives up from Texas. They brought their barbecue traditions with them. Um, so we didn't – there's no barbecue tradition that's unique to Kansas City that started here. We kind of gave a second home to the barbecue traditions that really um, were birthed elsewhere. Um, and then we cultivated those and made and made them our own over time and then began to contribute things like burn ends and like the nature of our, our, our sauce specifically. But, um, you know, and now that, that – um, you know the globalization and and you know, has kind of pushed um, all food traditions out everywhere. Um, there are non-barbecue parts of the world that are creating a barbecue scene in their own cities, like St. Louis, New York, Chicago, um, even California. Um, and th- I think that they are wanting to appeal to the broadest possible audience, and so they're offering barbecue on their menu from all parts of the of the kind of the, the historic barbecue traditional world. And that makes sense. I mean, that's good marketing. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to open a barbecue restaurant in a, in a town that doesn't have a, a unique barbecue tradition, offer as much as you can to appeal to the widest possible audience. And, and I don't know, I've not met them. It was salt and smoke, by the way, it was absolutely delicious. Um, they didn't call it any of that. You know what I mean? It's right. a St. Louis barbecue. Right. And I'm seeing thick sliced brisket. I was going to say, is, was Kansas City represented on there? No, not no mention. Well, they, and they didn't say it wasn't something else. Right. But, you know, I, I just found that really fascinating, especially after. And I, I don't know what you think about the I say news, probably just because I've recently caught on. It's been around a while. The thicker sliced brisket that we're seeing at Harps and Justing Pigs. Mm. And, 
is that Texas? Tyler Harp said it's just it how te- I would do it. It is Texas. It is that's very very much Texas. That's what Aaron Franklin has made his name doing. It's what it's it's very old school Texas. Hand car, you know, hand sliced, thick sliced brisket. But um, newish here. Or New, no? Newish here, yes, it is newish here. Um, you know, I mean, we we use a slicer for our brisket and always will. And uh, people have said, well, why don't you? You know, people have come here to our place and 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 have been critical of the fact that that we you know we use a deli slicer for our brisket. Well, I don't know. We're serving hundreds of people at each of our restaurant every day, and that's the efficient way for us to cut our meat. And it's also the way that our brisket tastes best. Um, and uh, you know, and we don't we don't cook it to to be sliced by hand, which is inefficient. And we don't you know, and and and, and the brisket, you know, we, it it holds up best when we thinly slice ours. And there's a reason for it. It's not accidental, and it's not just convenient. It's it's well thought out, and it's our technique. But the thick sliced brisket is a Texas thing, and Aaron Franklin has popularized it, you know, across the nation, and now. There, you know, every every popular style is going to have its imitators. You know, yeah. the way that they offer when they ask brisket burnin, it was like burnin was just one of the options of brisket. That kind of put a point to my mind of what I've been trying to think of is how Kansas City, I think, has made the meat just as well as any Texas brisket. It's just maybe, and I could be wrong. We were using that cut for the burn ends for the juicy fatty because to have enough for a restaurant menu mm-hmm. instead of just the actual ends like we could mm-hmm. these days. Is that fair? Is it a different? When 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 Calvin, Calvin Trillin first started talking about Bryant's burnt ends, he actually didn't call them burnt ends. He called hmm. them burnt edges, hmm. and they were literally the edges. Bill, am I right? I mean, they they were the edges of the brisket. Yeah, that's right. You know, a, a brisket tapers off mm-hmm. um, at each end, mm-hmm. and um, when it cooks for seventeen hours, those ends, big, since they're thinner, yeah. They they lose they lose more moisture. Yeah. They get crispy and they and they're not good for sandwiches. So they're lopped off, uh, right there at the counter, mm-hmm. right there at the sandwich counter. Am I right? Mm-hmm. And then and and at Bryant's they do cut it by hand. So they lop those off first. They pile up over time. At least in the old days they did, and. Customers would reach in and grab those grab burn, it, yeah. edge, burn edges, mm, and they, yeah. they are very intense mm-hmm. because they um, are intensely caramelized. They've got a lot of smoke, they, and whatever seasoning is there is concentrated, and they taste great. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, and so they, you know, they kind of burn up. They, they pile up. Somebody got the idea that, it, you know, let's put those on the menu. And how do you recreate Well, something? you only get two burn ends <laughs> per brisket. right. So now you, you don't. So you've got to find a way to actually manufacture burnt ends more than just that's right. that's two per brisket. So the only the, the way that that Jeff did it was that he would cook a whole brisket up to a certain point. Uh, when the flat part of the brisket, uh, which is the leaner part, was finished, he would trim the the point off the brisket. Return it to the smoker for another five hours, where it would re- render even more fat out of it, more caramelization, more bark, and then he would chop that up and serve it as burnt ends. Now, the problem is, is that we only cooked whole briskets three times a week. We cooked flat briskets every day of the week, but we only cooked whole briskets three days a week. There was a reason for that. It's a long story. It's not. It's boring. Uh, there are production reasons for that and technical reasons for that. But 
Um, that's why we only, for a, a long part of our history as a company, only served burn ends three days a week. Um, mm. It got to the point where whole, uh, uh, whole briskets were actually cheaper than than flats uh, by themselves. And so it made more sense for us to buy whole briskets all the time. And so we began then cutting the, the point off the brisket to start with and cooking them 17 hours in the same uh, smoker as our, as, our, as, our, um, as our pork butts. And so now we specifically, um, we have a, a process that's specifically designed to create burn-ins right from the get-go, and we can now serve them every day of the week. But we, we make them from the point, which is the fattiest part of the brisket, and um, and you know we we cook it for a long long time to get that caramelization to get that bark and to render most of the fat out of the out of the point which is a very very fatty part of the brisket, but you know it, again that's that's not does that have any historical connection to the burnt edges that Calvin Trillin talked about at Bryant's? No. Mm, not really, not really. You know, I mean, it, it, it we call them burnt ends now, but that's. That's they're not really related to the burnt edges that that Trillin talked about, but there you have it. Yeah, it's evolved. Well, mm-hmm. What's the Arthur Bryant's uh, heat was so intense that the whole brisket would it make burn ends out of out there. Arthur Bryant's probably the first one that came out with the burn ends because of the process of the way that they cooked, but the heat was so intense. It automatically, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they were burning so, something so, there. Yeah. And Arthur Bright said when he first started out, they they, they were they were their beef sandwiches to me was thick because it, hmm. it was all hand sliced, you know. Oh that's so interesting. They, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Back back you go back in the, in the early forties, you know, so you didn't have all the modern equipment that they have today. Well that's true. Yeah. Things have changed. And you know, we've talked about this, Michael. Um it's really hard when you're doing uh, historical work trying to find out about this. You can you can find people, and you can find places, and you you do a lot of really cool database stuff that you showed me before. But we talked about not really finding a whole lot about what the flavor was mm-hmm. and what the techniques were back in the day, which I think is really fascinating and fun to be talking about it now, so that in the in the future people know what we've been doing during this this era of barbecue but talk to me a little bit about how that has been uh, a challenge for you and you wanted to get in a room with people who had a little more food-based knowledge well i mean also i guess what what got me asking that question was um you know when henry perry figures in arthur bryant's story when he talks about himself he always makes this point that oh um you know my brother got the sauce from henry perry it was very spicy i sweetened it up and that yeah brought back this question of okay well what exactly is a kansas city particularly if we keep putting if we keep placing henry perry sort of at a center as an origin story if that is that our Kansas City flavor and it's just been changed over time or like what what and so yeah that's what leads me to these kinds of questions about okay what exactly is this taste that we're having particularly when like I said we, we think about that as being who we are and part of who we are as a culture here in Kansas City and sometimes it's hard to you, figure out what was going on with flavor because right. they weren't necessarily they didn't right. have food critics running right. around well, or and there's, Anthony and there's, Bourdain or and there's limited there's limited accounts of I mean I, I, this I think shows up in the 1932 interview with Perry, but in a few other places. But there's not a huge amount of accounts about. Let me tell you about my process. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about this is how I did the food. This is where I bought the food. I mean, certainly I always bought the best meat, but right, um, those sorts of processes aren't necessarily always in those 
those accounts, particularly back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, um, and whatnot. I mean, I think that probably changes, you know, later, but right when we have food critics and people talking about that. But before that, yeah, it's a much harder harder thing to come to. Well, not to mention the ingredients themselves. You know, decades later, (laughs) food tastes a little differently too. Bill, did the sauce taste the same in Brian's back then when you started working there as it does now? Well, the sauce, uh, Arthur Bryant's sauce was totally different. It was age. Really? Some of the the sauces that Arthur uh, uh, served probably was six, eight months old. Then Arthur was the first one to have the the, the uh, 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 the cooler where he serves uh, uh, aged meat, you know, oh. after it cooked, and he did that for the Jewish people, and he shipped it over to to Israel. He had certain families that that sometimes it'd be this much small on it on, on the meat because in that in that part of the country that's 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 how they age their food. Get ready to cut. Well, they did it. They did it in in the country, down the countries here. You know, smoke houses, meat bill. They just slice, just cut the mold off of it. So, mm. it, so that, was, that was that was the process that, that uh, Arthur and Charlie had when they cooked for the for the Jewish folks. They, they had a coolie walk in and mold would be this thick on it. Wow. Yeah. And the but sauce you, was aged. Yeah, and the sauce was aged. All all of Arthur Bryan's sauce it was at least. Eight months old. Mm-hmm. He had he had the big jars. I guess twenty third of them down in down in the basement. Was aging. And was it spicy yeah. mostly? Well, yes, it's spicy. Most of Arthur Bryant's sauce was had had a lot of paprika. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and lard. Lard lard has a way of uh, of, of preserving food, you know. So. And, then, and and now they don't use lard. They throw you in jail. You could come up with using a bunch of lard now. <laughs> there's lard but in the sauce. There's, yeah, the sauce. Yeah, in the sauce. But the, I mean, they still use lard for their fries. I believe. Well, yeah, they still use lard. You yeah. know, but not like like they used to use it. Lard, you know? yeah. because you didn't have all, all, all these. Uh, uh, be always terrible. They didn't have all these late late uh, oils. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the the original uh, cooking oil came from a hog. It was lard, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And he made soap out of it, you know. So yeah, yeah. Also, tell us a little bit about some of the the meats. We've seen some, I think, some advertisements in some of the newspapers, and I think Doug's got them in the book of different different meats that we used to eat. What do you recall eating when you were a kid? Was there anything besides beef? Was there? I think we've. Well, when I was a kid coming up, people people were poor, you know. We ate a lot of lunch meats, you know. Mm-hmm. You go down to the store and buy twenty five cents worth of lunch meat was a big order, and they give you the crackers. Mm-hmm. That was a big order. Yeah, you feed, you feed a whole family off twenty for twenty five cents worth of lunch meat. Mm-hmm. You, know, you got to realize eggs was five cents a dozen. You know, milk was three cents. You know, when I was a kid coming up. I remember the, during the, during the during the depression time. You know, it's mm-hmm. totally different. Yeah. yeah. Well, you and I have been eating uh, pig snoot it's once snoot. or twice before. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so what else? Also, I think you've told me uh, raccoon was was sometimes a possum. What what else did the, yeah, we well, used to barbecue people, in the day? People, people back at, back then in, in in the early years, you take the twenties and thirties, they ate a lot of. Uh, 
of uh, coons and well, they ate off the land, you know, yeah. rabbits, coons, squirrels. That's that's the way it was. You so know. you can barbecue they, anything. Yeah, you can barbecue all. You can barbecue it all. Good barbecue squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's I think what's neat about that advertisement about the things that he's offering, right? He's offering the familiar, mm. right? I mean, it's it's calling out, you know, a particular you know crowd of people. I'm thinking about the you know it's a period of the Great Migration. It is a lot of folks moving from the south mm-hmm. up towards the north, and Kansas City is sometimes a permanent home, sometimes it's a stopping ground. But right, I mean, it's calling out the familiar. Um, you know, I think that's I think that's what's neat neat about that advertisement. Those advertisements. What were his restaurants called? Were they just called Henry Perry's? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Did they continue after he passed? No. Um, he left one. The one that Charlie Bryant managed became. became. Charlie, it was left to him. Um, we don't really know. I don't really know. Maybe. Here's what I mean. Maybe what I was able to figure out was after Henry Perry's stroke is when sort of Charlie Bryant goes off and starts his own business. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to say it's like 28 or 29 because I was able to go through the city directory site and see when he is, when is he working with Henry Perry. Interesting. And then when that sort of breaks off. Um but then also, I mean, it was, and it's just a, a recent find. Like I said, I think it's a 1944-1945 um, newspaper advertisement for Henry Perry, or it's either Henry Perry's restaurant or Mrs. Jones cooking in the Henry Perry style. Really, right? Hmm. This idea that oh, this is a name that matters, right? That that's an advertisement. It is a reason for you to come see, and it's in the same location. It's at 19th and High location. That's fascinating. Um, and I know there was one person operating the business the following year in '41. Uh, named Addie Burns, I believe is her name, still operating that exact same in that exact same location. Some and women. listed as Henry Perry. Ex- isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that advertisement I mentioned that was from like forty four, forty five, and um, I'll look that up and I'll send it to you. Is is a woman who is who is operating the business? Addie uh, Burns. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. You know, and and so yeah, like so. What strikes me about that is that then that name still matters, and right, that idea of like how long that name continues to matter. Right mm-hmm. before we get to Calvin Trillin, right? right? And does that continue? To what point does that continue to have resonance? And I, I mean, the other thing, and I would love to hear more about, you know, um, Charlie Bryant, right? Because he's kind of the, the direct link, right. right? And and how does he factor into sort of these continued stories about um, about Henry Perry and as as yeah. part of an origin thing? And then seeing how sort of Arthur Pinkard fits into this because right. he becomes, like I said, this other. There's a reason his portrait hangs in right at Gates restaurant. Well he was working yeah. for um, Old Kentuck. Right. When yeah. uh, when when George Gates bought right. Old Kentuck. So he yeah. inherited Arthur yeah. Pinker when he bought the when he right. bought the business. Yeah. What's Old Kentuck, yeah. Doug? Old Kentuck was the uh, was a restaurant in the um, you know the eighteenth Vine district. Um, the way that Ollie tells the story to me um, was that uh, George wanted bought Old Kentuck because he wanted the liquor license that came with Old Kentuck. Mm. And he really wanted to get into, you know, he wanted to open a bar. Um, yeah. His wife, um, uh, Arzelia, uh, George's wife, um, Ollie's mom, uh, was very devout, devout Methodist and was not keen on the liquor business and instructed George that he'd be in the barbecue business, not in the liquor business. Oh. Um, and, uh, and we're so thankful, right? <laughs> yes, we are. Um, but Arthur Pickard came along with the business. And, um, and uh, the, the, one of the reasons why, in, if you look at um, you know, regional barbecue traditions in America, um, mutton is a um, barbecue tradition that's popular in Kentucky. And um, they bought Old Kentuck, which means that 
which implies that the whoever started that business before you know before Gates bought it um, had some Kentucky connection, and uh, mutton is still on the menu at Gates all these years later. Uh, and so there's they've, they've maintained that Kentucky tradition. I'm not aware of any other barbecue joint in Kansas City that serves mutton. I don't think I knew they did. Um, wow, Eddie, as many times I've been there. I was going to say, and, and, and you know, Old Kentucky kind of has this longer history before it gets down to yeah. sort of where it was. I mean, it, it had, have a, had previous ownership. I know, I think I think Gates bought it from a guy named Johnny Thomas. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it was a popular night par- spot. They, they and, were actually yeah. partners for a yeah. while. Okay, I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. know that piece. Mm-hmm. And and that, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a big night spot. It's where you know, jazz is being played. Right. I mean, it, and, and it's in basically that about that same spot where Henry Perry oh, yeah. mm-hmm. had been located, where Dixieland was right. then next located. <laughs> right. Right, and, and so that spot itself Itself, right there at what would that be the the northwest corner of yeah. 19th and and vine right you know um and when was this again old kentuck and all of this didn't uh i think that um that uh gates bought it in 1946 46 yeah. yeah i was gonna say yeah. bill, bill did you eat there bill knows this. oh yeah wait that was kid but uh oj uh bartlett he's mm-hmm. he's one that owned on the on the restaurant see and uh dixieland uh, Dixland, Dixland, Oak Kentucky, Dixland, Oak Kentucky barbecue, or, or maybe it's Oak Kentucky, Dix, Dixland barbecue. Uh, O.J. Uh, Bartlett, that, that Pinkett, I, I don't remember him. I don't know. Hmm. He's, he probably was in there with uh, Mr. Bartlett, you know. Did you but, know uh, Did you know him at all, Arthur Pinkard? No, I didn't know him. Okay. I didn't know him at, at, at all, you know. See, that's, uh, uh, I knew, I knew, knew, uh, uh, Bertram, Bertram Bartlett was old days, oh, was uh, his dad, one that owned, owned Old Kentucky Barbecue, Dixieland Barbecue, you know. And that was. They're different places. They're two different places, right? Uh, Dixieland and Old Kentucky? No, different, same. Same place. Okay. Same, same place. Oh. Same okay. name on, my, on 19th Street. And they were there uh, doing barbecue in the 40s, early 40s. Wow. So was, so was, uh, 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 uh Heron, uh, shoot, uh, guy named Heron, he was at, uh, Purcell, uh, uh, Vine and, 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 uh, uh, Parade Way Park, 17th Street. Now, he, he served, he served, he served a lot of lamb, too. Hmm, interesting. But now, uh, 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 Old Kentucky Barbecue, they didn't serve, they didn't serve, they didn't serve much lamb. It, but uh, Henry Henry uh, uh, Aaron at Seventeenth and, uh, and and Vine, he served a lot of lamb, wow. served a lot of lamb and and and, and sausages. He made his own sausages. So, and he served he served fresh he served fresh every day, and he was type the individual he like. He was talking about. He knows a lot about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 processing art. Uh, if four people came in and bought a beef sandwich, and the first fifth person came in and bought a beef sandwich, he would tell them, "So I sell more than beef." <laughs> yeah, he told me. Oh yeah, he was. And then, and then, whenever he got tired, he just he just give the food away and close up <laughs> and open up fresh the next the next day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you cook, cook fresh every day. It's called limited edition, yeah. right? That's right. 
And it, and it works really well today, I think. You know, you can only get this for a limited time or for a certain number of hours or until we sell out, whichever model you choose, right? It almost right. tends to be a sign of success if you I mean, right? We only make enough to sell out. That The Jones sisters say that's what they do. Yeah, that's what they do. And, and so, 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 uh, 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 that going to be a... <laughs> Blue Parkway... Uh, uh, you thinking Big T's? No, not Big T's. No. Uh, big T's dad built that business, uh, mm-hmm. Oscar. Uh, uh, where you get the... What did you just call his name? I'll tell you. L.C. L.C. Oh. I built two of them for L.C. L.C. Oh, yeah? serves fresh every day. Mm. That's the reason why it's, it's so good. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, is cut, it hasn't been in a in cooler for a couple of days or one day. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, he sells right out of that pit. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't have any microwaves or anything. Everything is warm from that from from that oven that he, that he cooks at. That's the reason why it's, that's the reason why it gets the flavor. Well, I love when you order. They go okay, and they open it up, and you're three feet from yeah, it on the other side of the counter. Yeah. <laughs> it's right there, right? Yeah, that's. Well, Elsie had another re- restaurant too. I built a pit for him out there, ninety uh, fifth and I thirty five. It that, that that one closed up. Well, Bill, you're a big part of barbecue history, which is why I wanted you to meet these two. And I think this discussion could go on and on. And there's <laughs> yes, and there's more to dig up. And I think we need to start uh, getting together and maybe rewriting the. Or updating, mm-hmm. you know, adding to adding to <laughs> yeah. grand, grand barbecue because you you've made such a. I only scratched the surface. You made a fabulous <laughs> start, though. I don't think any of us would be asking these questions right now if you had it's not if you had not uh, gotten the knowledge, as Bill says. <laughs> gotten the knowledge. I love it. Yeah. So, um, and I really like the way he ex- explained the competition barbecue hmm. and then the restaurant bar. It's totally different. Mm-hmm. Totally, it totally different. It, it makes totally a lot of different. sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all for coming in. And Lindsay, it was, Boy, it was fun, wasn't it? I'm fascinated and starving now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you guys That's very much. Yeah, <laughs> it is. More barbecue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.